We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. What have we done? What have we done? The dignity of man. First, there was the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001 in reaction to September 11th. Then in 2003, the U.S. invaded Iraq for reasons no one seems to know. Now in 2015, we see great instability from the Chinese border all the way to Libya on the Mediterranean Sea. The impact of the disastrous decisions by the Bush administration and then by the Obama administration can hardly be overstated. They affect not only every country and nation in that tumultuous region, now including Syria and Turkey, but Europe and the U.S. as well. Of course, not all of the mess can be laid at the feet of the American administrations. There uh, was the unexpected backlash from the hopeful Arab Spring of 2011 as well. Now, where relatively solid nation states once were, there is only civil war. And what of America's alleged reason for intervening? Fighting terrorism? Instead of getting it under control, ISIS, which of course makes Al-Qaeda look gentle in comparison, now reigns over much of the widespread former Ottoman Empire. How much has our use of unmanned drones with their nearly incalculable toll on civilians terrorized and then led to greatly increased terror in the war on terror? Meanwhile, not unlike 1914, what was a relatively isolated fight now includes military involvement by the French, British, Jordanian, United Arab Emirates, Kuwaiti, Qatari, Bahraini, Moroccan, Egyptian, Saudi, and Russian planes and drones. Hello, 1914. All emulating the Americans, all conducting counterinsurgency, all undoubtedly killing many civilians. It is in this light that our guest today, Rebecca Gordon, will tell us about the work of four Nobel Prize winning organizations from Tunisia, where it all started in 2011. We know what might have been had, uh, might have been had the 1914 disagreement between Serbia and Austria-Hungary not drawn in so many new and distant belligerents. From these organizations, we can look at what might have been had it not been for the myopic outside intervention by Washington and now by so many others. Our guest today on uh, Keeping Democracy Live is Rebecca Gordon. Rebecca, thanks so much for being with us from San Francisco. Glad to be here. She teaches at the philosophy department at the University of San Francisco and for the university's Leo McCarthy Center for Public Service and the Common Good. What a concept, the common good. (laughs) 
Previous publications include Letters from Nicaragua and Cruel and Unusual, How Welfare Reform Punishes Poor People. Thank you, Bill Clinton, for that. Her latest book, American Nuremberg, The Officials Who Should Stand Trial for Post-9-11 War Crimes, comes out from Hot Books in March of 2016. Thank you so much for being with us today. Her uh, resume and curriculum vitae goes on and on. Very impressive stuff. Well, the term Arab Spring held out so much hope back in 2011. After many decades of undemocratic, often highly repressive, dictatorial regime, it seemed possible that a better, more peaceful, and just world for the people in the Middle East might actually be coming into being. And for the most part, the peaceful and enthusiastic uprisings came to unfortunate results indeed. Perhaps ironically, the place where the Arab Spring all started, Tunisia, is the only one uh, that thrived as was hoped by so many. And Tunisia is, cur- is the country of origin for this year's Nobel Peace Prize winners. Our guest has written about these winners and put it all in context of what has gone so terribly wrong in the rest of the Arab world. Again, thanks for being with us, Rebecca. Who are the winners of the Nobel Peace Prize this year, and why were they the recipients? So the winners of the prize are a group called the National Dialogue Quartet, and this is a group of four organizations, labor unions, a human rights organization, and a lawyer's association, These are people who had been long part of civil society, and at the point when it looked as though Tunisia might be in danger of, of losing all of the momentum of the Arab Spring, they were able to come together, create the kind of dialogue that made it possible to make a transition from the first elected, the first elected government in Tunisia to a second more secular, and what looks for the moment to be a more stable, democratic country in Tunisia. So what this is is an example of civil society. That is, people who are neither members of the government nor necessarily um, part of the, of the other power brokers in the, in the countries, for example, the military, but people who are members of ordinary society and representatives of the society as, an, as organized forces. So as Juan Cole at Informed Comment has said, it's very important that among these were two labor unions, and Tunisia is a country where, you, where labor actually was organized. And it's also not surprising that it should be people who were in the labor movement who were concerned with keeping the country together because in many ways the original complaints, the things that led to the first uprising in Tunisia were really economic concerns. They were concerns about the fact that even people who had managed to achieve substantial higher education were not able to gain the kind of employment that might look as though it's commensurate with that. And they were also very concerned about the fact that the government of Ben Ali, in addition to being repressive and uh, autocratic, was also extremely corrupt. And this is something, of course, that, that is a problem throughout the world. The way that the intermingling of money and economic needs and autocratic 
rulership is something we see throughout the world, and it's one of the primary barriers to democracy in the world. And so this is part of what was going on in Tunisia and part of the reason that people were so concerned and so ready to come into the streets and to overthrow the dictatorship of Zine El Abedin Ben Ali, who, by the way, had been backed by the United States for many years. What a surprise. (laughs) It's just amazing. If you look at the past, oh, 100 or so years, really, since uh, the so-called Spanish-American War, Mm -hmm. I, I don't know when we've ever been on the right side and the 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 instability that has come about is uh, as a result of that is just it's it's amazing i don't know how we can be paying so little if any attention to it so let's talk about tunisia a little bit i mean the labor unions as you described were were a big part of it that they had some strength i i wonder if you know, what What makes Tunisia different? Why did it work there? How did they prevent Tunisia from slipping into civil war? What? How, how did they do it and the other Arab Spring countries couldn't? Well, I think there are a number of things that are particularly unique and important about Tunisia. One is that it actually had an organized left. That is, an uh-huh. organized, uh, democratic, anti-authoritarian uh left that were secularists, and so left over from the earlier period of secular Arab nationalism of the 1950s and 60s, and so these were the inheritors of that period, and as I say, also student groups, young people, women's organizations, and a strong human rights organization. All of those were important, but I think also It's important to to note that Tunisia did not, unlike, say, Egypt, have a really big army. Uh In fact, Egypt's army is in the top 20. It's about number 18 in terms of military strength in the world. Mm -hmm. Tunisia's army, by comparison, was very small, and they were not as deeply allied with the Ben Ali dictatorship as, say, uh, Mubarak and the Egyptian military were allied. So that's an important difference. Another important difference is is that there are really two phases in the Tunisian revolution. The first was the point when Ben Ali was thrown out, and he eventually accepted asylum in the uh, arms of another U.S. ally, Saudi Arabia. So that's where he is today. And at the point when he was thrown out in October of 2011, so about 10 months after the uprising began, they held parliamentary elections, and a right-wing religious party, (coughs) excuse me, known as Al-Nakhda, which means Renaissance, took 37% of the vote, and that actually gave them 42% of the seats in the parliament. And they formed a coalition with two other parties, one that was on the left and the other that was liberal but secular. However, what happened was that um, as they continued to rule, there were a number of assassinations of left-wing politicians, and the people who claimed responsibility for these were a right-wing Islamist militia that's called Ansar al-Sharia, and they claimed responsibility for this. So a number of people, in fact hundreds of thousands of people, were unhappy that the revolution had turned towards an Islamist 
direction and had begun to impose versions of Sharia or mm-hmm. um, law in the country, and they were not happy with the fact that the government was doing nothing about the fact that other politicians were being picked off at will, mm. they began to stage enormous demonstrations. At this point, what happened was that al-Nakhda actually stepped down. There could have been a terrible... At this point, they could have actually turned into what happened in Syria. There could have been a civil war. But instead, they were able... The National Dialogue Quartet was able to convince the al-Nakhda party to withdraw from government, and they were able to put a sort of technocratic caretaker government in place and then a new constitution was written. And in October 2014, parliamentary elections were held and then presidential elections in November. And this new constitution is secular. So that doesn't mean that religion is illegal or anything like that, but what it does mean is that the government is recognized as being non-religious. Another thing that makes Tunisia a little bit different from some of these other countries is that the country is 99% Sunni mm-hmm. Muslim. Yeah. And this means that they they have this kind of homogeneity in the population that's very different from what we see in Iraq, in Syria, in much of the rest of the greater Middle East and Northern Africa. Wow, yeah, that does certainly make a difference. And I, I do find it curious, I mean, with all these other Nobel Prizes that have been handed out and publicized, I've been wondering, the Nobel Peace Prize, what happened to that? We, I, it's curious how the mainstream media hasn't said anything about it. It, it just sank like a stone. And I think that's because Tunisia is not a country that the United States knows very much about. And I think also, um, you know, we are in a run-up to an exciting election in 2016, and the media seems to be a little bit distracted And then, of course, we did have the news of one Nobel laureate bombing the hot, destroying the hospital of another Nobel laureate in Kunduz in Afghanistan, and that sort of took people's attention away. But, you know, the Nobel Prize itself has a long and interesting history, (laughs) the Peace Prize, and some very strange people have received it over the years. Yes. Uh, One of them, it just amazes me. I mean, true, he shared it with Le Docteau, but Henry Kissinger, Peace Prize? Henry Kissinger, fresh from having uh, assisted at the overthrow of Salvador Allende in Chile and ushering in the torture regime of Augusto Pinochet. Uh, And I should say that my major work these days is actually on the issue of torture. Um, So I I know a fair amount about that, that particular regime and the U.S. involvement in that coup. In fact, you know, it used to be before 2001 that when people talked about September 11th, what they were talking about was September 11th, 1973. Absolutely. And the coup that overthrew Allende. So, yes, he had just finished doing that. They had been um, putting together the so-called Paris Accords, in which he and Le Le Docteau of North Vietnam had signed an agreement. To, by the way, refused to accept his peace prize on the grounds that the United States had already begun to violate the very accords that they had signed in Paris. Oh, yeah. Well, we talked about uh, Kissinger on a previous Keeping Democracy Alive show. Mm -hmm. It's, It's not a pretty story, and it does appear that he'll probably die without standing trial for the many war crimes 
he committed. Our guest on today's Keeping Democracy Alive, Rebecca Gordon. Uh, we're talking about uh, uh, the reality in Tunisia, the Peace Prize, and what else the U.S. has really gotten wrong in the area that, that we could have gotten right. Her latest book is American Nuremberg, The Officials Who Should Stand Trial for Post-9-11 War Crimes. Again, that comes out in March of 2016. Now, we know a fair amount about what came out of the Arab Spring in Egypt. Uh, it, it looked so hopeful there. We all remember the pictures there, the, the sense of hope. It looked, it looked fabulous. What was the U.S. role in Egypt after the uh, Arab Spring ouster of the dictator Mubarak? You know, it's interesting. I teach, as you say, at the University of San Francisco, and I had a number of Arab students in 2011 who were so excited by the Arab Spring, and one I'm was sure. a young Egyptian American who had spent half his life in Egypt and half in the United States, and I will never forget how excited he was when those people were out there in Tahrir Square, and it really looked as though something amazing was going to happen yeah, in, sure did. in Egypt. It was such an exciting moment. So what happened, of course, is that, um, again, there was sort of a two-stage event, and the first thing that happened was that Finally, Mubarak actually, he got a little shove from the U.S., and he left. And what happened after that is that, again, there were elections held. This time, the Muslim Brotherhood, which had long been both banned and, in fact, deeply repressed by the Mubarak regime, they were, they were elected to the government. And again, what happened, as in Tunisia, people became very restive under their rule. There were problems with corruption, but more than that, it was the sense of repression under a particular kind of religious law that did not go down well with everyone. Mm. And one of the differences between Egypt and Tunisia is that at the point when the government of Morsi uh, Mohamed Morsi, right. who was the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood and uh, the, pre the elected president, when he was thrown out, in Tunisia, when they threw out the, the Islamist group, um, they did not, the, the following government did not repress them, did not outlaw them, did not make them enemies of the state. In fact, they continued to participate in Tunisian politics. However, in Egypt, what happened is that after Morsi's government was deposed, and that happened with the help of the Egyptian military, who essentially finally stepped in and threw him out, they then turned around under the new government yeah. of el-Sisi mm -hmm. and outlawed the, brother, the, the Brotherhood again. So once again, the Muslim Brotherhood is an underground, illegal organization right. who have been pursued and tortured. And the, the result is... Um, that there's not this same sense of of an, an entire people being able to come together, make peace, agree to disagree, and create a secular democracy. Yeah. Instead, the United States uh, briefly withheld military aid to Egypt. And we should point out, Egypt is the second largest recipient of U.S. military aid, second only to Israel. There are some exceptions during the years of the height of the Afghan and Iraq war in which military aid supposedly to Iraq and to Afghanistan 
exceed those amounts. But basically, the world's biggest recipients of U.S. military aid are Egypt and Israel. And of course, they receive it, in a sense, together as a result of the Camp David Accords. That's part of what Egypt got out of the Camp David Accords. And so, briefly, after Morsi was deposed by the military, which is very powerful in Egypt, and al-Sisi came to power, he is both the head of the military and now the head of state, President Obama was very careful never to say that what had happened right. in Egypt was a coup d'etat. Right. Because if it had been a coup, U.S. law would have made it illegal to send any money to the new government. And so it was never described that way. And now Egyptian aid is right back up to the military, is right back up to where it ever was. Mm. And essentially what's happened is the people of Egypt have been able have traded one U.S. and military-backed dictatorship for a new U.S. and military-backed dictatorship. Absolutely. is what we call stability Tuh. in the language of uh, the United States State Department. Ah, uh, yes. Doublespeak, it had been called before. Stability. Yes, and stability. It, 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 when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, Everybody knew across the world that the U.S. was the guarantor of democracy. We fought against colonialism. We fought for democracies. Excuse me? Yeah. (laughs) That was what we thought. That's what we were taught, absolutely. And I think one of the things that happens sometimes even here on on the left in the United States is that the understanding that those things were not true is so hard won that one of the things we forget is that people in other countries also have their own agency. And so I don't want in any way to suggest that the United States is the only actor in the Arab Spring countries. And in fact, that's what makes the quartet so exciting and so important, is here we have an example of indigenous Arab people in their own country taking charge of the future of their own country. And this is something that I think even in the end, even all the military power and all the stratagems and all the the spying and the drones and the killing and the torture, in the end, you can't hold people down. I really believe that. And so I think although this Arab Spring has met a pretty nasty frost in a lot of places, it's not the end of the story. Fortunately, the story right now is extremely bloody. No, extremely bloody. The suffering that we're seeing is... As the UN has said, the worst refugee crisis that Europe has faced since the end of World War II. And it's it's amazing to me how letting people have their own government is just something we don't get. It just is appalling. And certainly one of the fatal errors in the American war on Vietnam was that American policymakers painted it as part of a big-picture struggle between the U.S. and the Soviets, which, of course, it was not. Today, there's a big civil war in another Arab Spring country in Yemen. And, again, it seems like, you know, the I mean, the U.S. painted Vietnam as this, you know, just a, a playing field between uh, America and the Soviet Union. Never mind that the indigenous people of Vietnam wanted to have their own way, and that's what it was about all along. All along. All along. Right? The, and we just recognized, and that's what they got in the final analysis. They wanted unity in 1954, before 1954, but they got it in 54. It was taken away by us, and then they got it again. These th- You can't keep people down as 
as Rocky said famously to Bullwinkle, that trick never works. <laughs> Tell us a, about the role of U.S. policymakers in Washington in the global context in which it has been cast, Yemen, that is, and the results of the, that mindset on the people of Yemen. Okay, so Yemen, yet another country. Yemen is a country that until 1990, for a long time, was actually two countries, North Yemen and South Yemen. Right, In 1990, it became a single country. It is, Yemen is an interesting place because it's one of those countries that has a really profound rural and urban divide, and the ur- the lives of people in the urban parts of Yemen are very culturally extremely different from those of the pastoral people who live in the rural parts of the country. And there's a great deal of distrust and dislike between those two. Um, you could say the same thing, say, about, oh, I don't know, Albany and New York City and yeah. New York State, <laughs> to give you an idea. Really? That's a good point. <laughs> so, um, the... Ali Abdullah Saleh was the president of Yemen for 33 years. And when people started demonstrating in the streets of the capital, Sana'a, at the end of 2011, he was holding on to power. And he cracked down. Between 200 and 2,000 people died in the crackdown. So much smaller in scale than some of the other uprisings. But... um, he was pushed out, and one of his deputies, a guy named Hadi, was um, Mansour Hadi, was replaced him. And he since has been ousted by a rebellion of a group of people called the Houthi. Right. Now, this is sort of complicated because the Houthi are both a um, tribal group, and they are a political force, and they are a movement of rural tribes people who are members of a particular branch of Shia Islam called Zaidi. And so these Sunni tensions, Shia tensions, are part of what's going on in Yemen because Hadi is a member of what in Yemen is a minority, the Sunni branch of Islam. So now it gets more complicated because in Yemen, the U.S. had long been involved in... uh, drone attacks, Yemen was a place where the U.S. had decided that various members of al-Qaeda in the Arab Peninsula were hiding, and they um, they actually used drones to murder people, including a U.S. citizen named Al-Aki, who was, um, who was a, a U.S.-born Muslim, a U- or a U.S. citizen, Muslim is- imam, who became gradually more and more radicalized over the year and he was years he was living in Yemen and he and actually his 16-year-old son mm. were murdered from the skies by a US drone in what can really only be called an extrajudicial execution. Mm. The US government made the intentional decision to murder a US citizen without any kind of trial, without any kind of due process in Yemen. Unfortunately, um, as often happens with drone attacks, they are not the surgical uh, strikes that we like to think of. It's not a scalpel going in and removing a tumor. Mm -hmm. What actually happens is that a lot of the flesh of Yemeni civilian life also gets excised. Mm. So uh, Jeremy Scahill has just recently, on The Intercept, put up a new um, series of 
of documents describing the drone war, especially in Yemen. But, you know, there are examples of people who were going shopping for Ramadan, and because there were three or four people in a truck or in a series of, of cars traveling from one town to another, they were designated an al-Qaeda uh, convoy, and cruise missiles were shot at them, and and people who had merely been shopping for food to celebrate the most, one of the most joyful days sure. in the Muslim calendar, were killed. Wow. The yeah. crime of being in a car that happened to be with other cars. The U.S. has been involved in Yemen for quite a while. However, what's happened now is that Saudi Arabia yes, has decided to that. come in. And as you know, the U.S. and the Saudis are... Really close. Deeply, <laughs> you can't get more deeply allied than the U.S. is with Saudi Arabia, and so what we now have is because because the Houthi are Shia and the Saudi are Sunni, we end up with this bizarre situation in, when the, in which the U.S. and the Saudis are using missiles and cluster bombs mm. in order to fight against the Shia, against the Houthis on the side of al-Qaeda in the Arab Peninsula and the Islamic State, which are both operating in Yemen. So the U.S. finds itself, and this is true also in Syria, fighting on the same side as the very people that they have currently designated as our greatest enemies in the world, that is, Islamic State. The U.S. also seems to have thrown down in a religious conflict that goes back to the very first generation of Islam, the very first generation after the death of Muhammad, is the point at which Shia and Sunni Islam split. And for some reason, we have decided that we have a position in a fight that goes, a religious fight that goes back to the 8th century. And around the entire greater Middle East, you will see the U.S. supporting Sunni forces against Shia forces. And this it's important to understand that, except in Iran, which is not an Arab country right. but and is a is a Shia uh, theocracy, sure. that in most of the Muslim countries, the Shia are tend to be poor, tend to be working class, tend to be <laughs> considered a less educated group, and tend to be repressed. And so, the U.S. for reasons that probably have to do with our alliance with Saudi Arabia, has seems to find itself over and over again on the side of Sunnis against the Shia in a fight that really has nothing to do with with the interests of people of ordinary people living in the United States. It certainly has something to do with uh, what U.S. governments have perceived as our geopolitical interests. Oh, to keep in power those in power with money, right? I, I that see. That would be what, it. That makes sense. It's it's amazing to me. And again, one thing I have learned from history is that we never learn from history. It just, it, it's absolutely amazing. It's 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 so there. The people you can't keep them down for. I mean, like there was the secret war in Cambodia. Well, guess what? It wasn't secret against the, the to the people of Cambodia. They knew perfectly well it was going on, and frankly, we knew too because Richard Nixon went on television and announced it. Yes, but it had been going on before that. But here, as we were talking about in Egypt and in Yemen, what must they think, the average person, perhaps the Shia, the, the lower class uh, person who's not in a position of power, what, what do you think their impression is of America and, and, the, and the long-term implications of that? I mean, Egypt has always been a wonderful—I've never been there. 
I'd like to go there. I don't think I'll be able to for a long time. What, yeah. what, what must be their opinion of, of the U.S.? What picture are we presenting them? You know, it's so amazing. I've, I was lucky enough to, to, in 2006 to visit Lebanon, Jordan, and Syria. I was only in Syria for about three days and in Jordan for about a week. So it was not a long trip, and my Arabic is limited to about eight words. So, I, you know, you don't really know what you're seeing in a short period of time like that. But one of the things that I've, I've experienced in traveling to, to um, in living in South Africa, in working and living in Central America, is that people all over the world are surprisingly sophisticated, perhaps because they have lived in autocratic governments themselves, and they are surprisingly generous in their willingness yeah. to make a distinction between the U.S. government and the people of the United States. Thank God for that. Oh my yeah, goodness. it's it's. I mean, I'm not saying this is true of everyone. Obviously, right. a group of people were quite willing to blow up the uh, to you know fly airplanes into the twin towers, but the truth is that many people in my personal travels have told me over and over again, we know there's a difference between you and your government. Right, and that's certainly. And yet, at the same time, I feel as someone who lives in what is still at least nominally a democratic country, mm. that as a citizen of this country, I have a tremendous responsibility not only to know as much as I can about what my government is doing, but to try to do something to stop it. We do have that responsibility. And I remember during the war uh, against Vietnam, the v- people in northern Vietnam, throughout Vietnam, clearly understood that it was our government making the war, that a lot of the people, thank goodness, were out in the streets and saying, no, we don't. And we have a responsibility to make noise as well. So we're talking, uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Rebecca Gordon. We're talking about uh, the Arab Spring, what went wrong, what the U.S. has done uh, since then. Uh, one of the uh, nations is is Libya. And, you know, it it looked so clear in the beginning Gaddafi was the bad guy. Without question, the U.S. always hated him. Apparently, it wasn't always that simple. There was nope. some kind of relationship between Colonel Gaddafi uh, after Lockerbie and before 2011. Do right. tell. Well, okay, so it's interesting. Yes, Muammar Gaddafi actually came to power in Libya in 1969 with a coup. Wow. And we had pretty tense relationships with him. And then in 1988, there was a terrorist explosion that brought down Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland. And even in the last couple of weeks, a uh, a couple more people have been identified who are believed to have been partially responsible for that attack. And they are currently in jail in Libya. And people in, 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 the, in Great Britain are trying to get them extradited sure. to the U.K. to stand, stand trial. But um, in 2003, Gaddafi acknowledged that Libya had been responsible for the bombing. And this was partly, I think, as a result of the economic sanctions under which Libya had been laboring. And Libya, like many places in that part of the world, has its primary has its primary income from the extractive oil industry. And so there had been sanctions against the Libyan oil industry, and Libya was suffering economically. And Gaddafi made two really 
probably strategically very clever decisions. First, he decided to acknowledge that Libya was responsible in some way, that somebody from Libya was responsible, although he said he didn't know anything about it, for this uh, explosion. Sure, Lockerbie. The Lockerbie. And honestly, I don't know what the motivation was behind that in the first place, why why somebody wanted to blow up this flight. But he... He acknowledged it, and he paid compensation to the victims' families. Hmm. And then in the same year, and this was really important, and it was quite um, a surprise when it happened. Uh, you may remember, Tripoli decided that, or you know, the government, uh, the capital of Libya, they decided that they were going to abandon their nuclear weapons program. And they let the IAEA come in, and of course... This was 2003. This was the year that the U.S. invaded Iraq, so that may have had something to do with it, too. Uh, you may have looked over there and said, hmm, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I want that over here. So they made Smart this man. agreement, and in fact, they did abandon their nuclear weapons plan. And so two years later, earlier, he had actually started to make peace with the, Ameri- with the European Union. And in 2010, the European Union gave him 50 million euros to do something about stopping what was already Five years ago, a huge flow of people who were migrating from northern Africa through Libya into Italy and thus into the whole European Union, they paid him 50 million euros to try to shut off that transit corridor. However, in 2011, when it looked like Gaddafi was going to be deposed, just as happened with Mubarak in Egypt, and just as Obama thought, or the Obama administration thought was going to happen with Syria, with with Assad in Syria, they decided to switch sides. And it looked, it was clear that Gaddafi was going to be deposed. And so Obama, not wanting to have the United States label on the military action, actually pushed NATO, although it was U.S. planes, mm-hmm. and also French planes, pushed NATO into doing um, an air war against Gaddafi, including the um, the hit on the convoy in which Gaddafi was, was traveling. The U.S. Uh, probably knew he was in that convoy, and so U.S. Predator drones and French jet fighters destroyed two of the vehicles in the in the convoy, not the one that Gaddafi mm-hmm. was in, and then a crowd of people... Yeah. You know, you've seen the pictures. You yeah. know what happened to him. He was he was murdered. Yeah. He he was not a good man, but he was no. murdered in a particularly ugly way. Yes, indeed, he was. Now, as of today, Libya is without a doubt a totally failed state. Completely failed state. Totally. There are well, two rival parliaments in opposite ends of the country, neither of which is actually ruling right. much of anything. And um, the other thing is that Gaddafi had huge armories. He had lots and lots of weapons. And those weapons were basically uh-huh. looted by the various oh, militias that started taking over in in Libya. And they have been sent all over. They Those weapons have shown up in Mali. They've shown up maybe as far south as Nigeria in Africa. They definitely went to the Sinai Peninsula. And uh, once again, we have a civil war or a series of wars going on in Libya, and a branch of Islamic State is taking over as well in certain and holding territory in certain parts of Libya. So once again, um, Iraq, as in Iraq, the U.S. 
is really good, it seems, at getting rid of dictators, not so good at figuring out what to do with it once you broke it. Hmm. Hmm. And, and I, I can't imagine where those weapons came from. Oh, well, that's an interesting <laughs> question, too. You know, and in fact, I mean, if we want to talk about the international trade, not only in mass destruction, but also small arms, yeah. there are a number of different countries who uh, could be held responsible for an international trade in small arms, which kills hundreds of thousands of people every year. Mm. And I'm looking at you, United States, but also France. Um, it's a, those, those industries really, it doesn't matter who wins because they keep selling the guns one way or the oh, other. Oh, sure. It's so profitable. War is so profitable. We all know that. And you know, we never hear about Bahrain. Oh, Bahrain. Well, what, what kind of government do they have, and what was the U.S. role in their version of the Arab okay. Spring? So Bahrain is an island. It's a little island on the western side of the Persian Gulf. It's only got like 1.3 million people in it. And of those 1.3 million, a lot of them are actually foreign workers, either people who are domestic workers in people's homes or construction workers. And so it's, it's a very small place. And it's, it's a kingdom. So it's one of those kingdoms that was left over after the great carve-up of the Middle East at the end of World War I. And um, the name of the royal family there is Al-Khalifa. And um, supposedly, according to the CIA's World Factbook, Bahrain is a constitutional monarchy, but it's not a democracy. So there are two houses in the parliament, and one house is completely appointed by the, by the royal family, by the king. The other house is elected, but it doesn't have much power. The king appoints the prime minister, the cabinet, and the members of the judicial system, and the people he appoints are mostly members of his family or himself. What's not to love? Right, exactly. <laughs> so once again, we have a situation where two-thirds of the Muslims and Bahrain is only about 75, 77% Muslim. There's also... There's, there are also um, a small Christian community, a small Jewish community, but the 77% who, who are Muslim, two-thirds of them are Shia. But the royal family and the ruling elite are Sunni. So what happened with the Arab Spring there? There was an Arab Spring. Was There, there was an Arab Spring, and they, um, uh, they chose their own Tahrir Square, which in this place was a key intersection. It's basically a traffic circle right, it's called right. the Pearl Roundabout, uh -huh. which is a big intersection in the capital of Bahrain, Manama, and they demanded that the king leave. The king decided, well, you know, I, I, no, I got a pretty good gig here. I'm not leaving. So he called on his allies, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Sa the Saudis sent 1,000 troops, the UAE... UAE sent another 500, and they were able to put down the demonstrations pretty quickly. Dozens of people were killed. So again, this is small scale because it's a small country. But thousands were rounded up, and many of them were tortured. The U.S. took sides and supported the king. And there's an important reason for this, which is that Bahrain, because of where it is in the Persian Gulf, uh. is strategically located, and it's where the U.S. 5th Naval Fleet is. So that's where we house the naval vessels that we use to keep naval control of the Persian Gulf. So the U.S. was not about to let go of, 
of the connection they had with the people who run Bahrain. And what about the the people of Bahrain, the people who participated in the what looked like a peaceful uprising? Are they just uh, happy with the situation now? What happens with that? That sentiment, I can't imagine, just gets erased and completely well, no, goes away. Well, no, of course not. And of course they're not happy with it. It's not a place where a lot of people report from. It's not a country that draws the attention of the international media. But I can't believe that the people who were arrested and the people who were tortured and the people who are their friends and family were not um, in some ways, uh, you know, aren't still angry and still want to resist. So I would say keep your eye on Bahrain because once the bottle has been opened, it's very hard to put the cork back in. You know, once there is that taste of freedom, of of, yep. of self-government, yep. it, it's not going to go away. It's never going to go away, ever, ever, once there's that taste of, you know, being able to govern oneself and, and determine one's own future. Then, of course, there's Syria. Syria. Yeah. The uh. Civil War has been called, you called it, the premier humanitarian disaster of the 21st century. Of course, it's still a fairly young century. It's a young century, and um, let us hope it's the worst. Yes. But, yes. Um, and, and you say that Washington has its fingerprints all over Syria's civil war. Please explain. Yes. Not in the sense that we directly instigated it. And, again, I want to give agency to the people of Syria who rose up against the Assad regime. And so let me just say a little something about Bashar al-Assad and um, his father, Hafez al-Assad, because it's important to understand that Syria was, and now it's it's a mess, was a police state. And there's no question that Syria had an extremely repressive government, and that it was it was in the process actually of trying to develop its tourism industry and to open up a little bit to the rest of the world and Syrians are very proud they are proud that the alphabet as we know it was born in Syria right. they are proud of the incredible history and the beauty of places like the Umayyad mosque which is in the center of Damascus and is just the most extraordinary building and it's it's an illustration of the incredible um fecundity and fruitfulness of the divine there's not one single square inch of this place that isn't decorated and this is the history and the culture of Syria which is ancient 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 these are proud people but the Assad regime was a police state and definitely corrupt definitely you know financial benefits for Assad and his family. But when people rose up, unlike in some of the other uh, uprisings, the military responded, the Assad regime responded with tanks and live fire and um, began beating back the the demonstrators with overwhelming military force. And this force goes on to include the barrel bombing of many towns and cities and in response in part to what became very quickly an armed resistance to Mm -hmm. Assad as opposed to a peaceful, massive, nonviolent sorts of demonstrations as we saw in the other Arab Springs. So then what, what happens is that the Arab Spring begins the, the, country begins to devolve into 
hundreds of different small militias and then larger militias, some of them representing al-Qaeda, some of them representing Islamic State, some of them supposedly being the moderate Islamists that the U.S. is supporting, um, although they're very hard to sort out. But as you say, our fingerprints go all the way back to 1996. So Richard Pearl and Douglas Fife, who were later going to be advisors to Dick Cheney Mm -hmm. when he was vice president under George W. Bush, were part of a group of about 17 people who wrote a concept paper for Netanyahu's first government when he was first the prime minister of Israel. And the paper was called A Clean Break. And the idea was that Israel could shape its strategic environment by cooperating with Turkey and Jordan to weaken, contain, and eventually even roll back Syria. And the first step to that would be to remove Saddam Hussein from power in Iraq. And the idea was eventually to replace him with a Hashemite king, as is the case in Jordan. The, the king um, mm-hmm. of Jordan is part of the Hashemite house. So this was the plan. And they presented it to Israel and said, look, this is it. Let's make a clean break. Let's get Hussein out of Iraq. Let's form this alliance with Turkey and Jordan. Let's throw, then it was Hafez al-Assad out of Syria. And Israel rejected this plan, probably because one of the clean breaks they also wanted Israel to make was with uh, the United States in their dependence on U.S. military aid. They suggested it would be better for Israel to go it alone or rather reshape its, um, its alliances with these other countries. So Netanyahu said, thanks, but no thanks. However, these people... Doug, you know, Richard Pearl and Doug Feith and Wolfowitz, who also was part of, of this, came along when Vice President Dick Cheney came into office, and they were there in the White House and brought the same plan to the Bush White House. And when the 9-11 attacks happened, this, as we well nice. know, gave a pretext for attacking Iraq. And so... This idea that by removing Saddam Hussein from Iraq, you could begin to destabilize the government in Syria was an idea that went back to the neoconservative movement of the 1990s, and you can see how it turned out. You know, these people, they really believe, this is the scary thing, they believe their own propaganda. They really believe Mm. that they are brilliant strategic thinkers and that they can move countries around like pieces on a board as if, you know, they probably all played risk when they were in college, and they really think that they can reorganize the world as easily as moving pieces around a, a playing board. Yeah, I was wondering what their goals were, Cheney and, and that uh, crowd of neocons. They just... Well, I would say world domination. Um, oh, just that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they would never call it that. It would be the extension of democracy yeah. to the entire benighted world. <laughs> but uh, democracy in the sense that um, the people who know what's good for other people get to tell them and get to put that in place. If you want to call that democracy, well... 
Humpty Dumpty was very good at calling things whatever he wanted to, and now it's through the looking glass. It is really through the looking glass stuff. It is. And, uh, you know, here we are in, in it's, it's an amazing situation in Turkey with the U.S. position and in Syria. And in many ways, we have ended up on the same side as our supposed greatest enemies in this alleged war on terror, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. Right. Can you explain that? I mean, it's just incredible. No. (laughs) I didn't think so. Not not in any sense. I think the way to explain it is to say that, in reality, Islamic State and Al-Qaeda are not our greatest enemies and have never been our greatest enemies. They are certainly extremely dangerous to the people who happen to be close to them, Mm -hmm. who happen to be in geographical proximity to them. They are, um, you know, not running any kind of place I would ever, especially as a woman, want to live. And they are vicious and cruel, and uh, but they are not in any possible calculus representing a strategic existential threat to the United States. If the United States has enemies in the world today, one is China, in the sense that they are our largest potential military sure. and economic competitor. Another is the Russian, uh, the Russia of Vladimir Putin. And here, again, we have an interesting situation. Now we have, you can't quite call it a proxy war, because ostensibly the United States and Russia are on the same side in Syria, except that the United States and Russia claim to have the same enemies, which are ISIS and or Islamic State and Al-Qaeda. But at the same time, the United States has called, in a sort of wishy-washy way, for the removal of Assad, whereas Russia has just been entertaining Assad in Moscow. So, you know, I think that the reality, as as all the observers, including the United Nations and Bond Ban Ki-moon have said, the reality is that the only hope for a solution to Syria's hideous civil war is talks, peace talks, and it's impossible to conduct such talks without including Bashar al-Assad. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. And the amazing thing... As long as the U.S. takes the position that he has to go before there are any talks, there's not going to be any peace. And to make this clear how bad this is, over half, over half of the people who live in Syria have had to leave their homes as a result of the civil war. You know, uh, wow, seven million are, are, home, are di- displaced internally inside Syria. That is, they no longer live where they used to live, and they're holding up with right. friends or family or who knows where. But five million of them are living in Lebanon alone, which is a small country right. with a small population, has taken in over a million they, there are another 4 million living in Turkey and Jordan. Jordan, which, by the way, had already received waves of, re- of refugees from Iraq after the U.S. invasion of Iraq, and whose population is already 65% Palestinians, many of whom still, after generations, are living in camps. So neither of these countries is prepared, and Iraq is another place that's received many Syrian refugees. And, of course, we have the hideous, picture of the people who are desperately risking their lives and the lives of their children to cross the Mediterranean and find some kind of asylum in Europe. 
I can't help but think that there are at least theoretical possibilities that the U.S. could possibly learn from the Nobel Peace Prize winners and just be doing things other ways. A little bit differently. (laughs) I would hope so. Of course, we have a Nobel Peace Prize winner at the head of our government at the moment. Yeah, I know. Although I think, as as I said in my article, that the committee gave him the prize basically for Hoping. not being George W. Bush. True, and that's 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 a reasonable thing. And and you did mention in your article that Mid East expert Toby Jones wrote, "If there's a price globally." A place globally where there is not just distance, but a huge gap between American interests and American values. It's in this region. That's exactly. Oh, my goodness. Very, very fascinating. Thank you for explaining it so well. If people are interested in following uh, your work, I'm sure there's some website to which you can point them. Yes, it's called MainstreamingTorture.org. And it's named after the name of my most recent book, which is Mainstreaming Torture, Ethical Approaches in the Post-9-11 United States. So mainstreaming torture, all one word, dot org. And people can also contact me through that website, and they can find links to some of my other work. Well, thank you so much. Let's hope for better days and, and fewer Washington Absolutely. bullets flying around. Thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy. You're very alive. welcome. Mama, mama, look there Your children are playing in the street again Don't you know what happened down there? A youth of 14 got shot down there The cocaine guns are jammed downtown The killing clowns are blood money men Shooting Washington bullets again As every cell in Chile will tell The cries of the tortured men Remember a Lenday in the days before Before the army came Remember Victor Hara in the Santiago Stadium Verdad Those Washington bullets again And in the Bay of Pigs in 1961 Havana for the Playboy in the Cuban sun For Castro is the color is a redder than red Those Washington bullets want Castro dead For Castro is the Check the British bullets in his armory. Fire. 